Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the incredible, incredible William Bell. Just one of the true legends of American music. William, so good to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful. So, William, we're going to talk about your incredible career, you know, and, and of course, talk about Stax. But I want to go back earlier, and I want to start with the Soul Stirrers and talk about the influence that they had on you and in general, how much church and gospel music, how big an influence that was on you. Well, I started in church uh, around seven and uh, seven years old. And uh, at that time, the soul stirrers were my heroes. I mean, uh, uh, Sam had just joined them and, uh, I love the way he phrased and the melodies and their harmonies and everything. And uh, they were my heroes. And I was singing uh, initially in church with the choir. And then after about a year and a half, I started doing some solo in the choir behind me. So, uh, but I learned a lot uh, with that gospel uh, training from singing with the choir and all. Jesus gave me water, Jesus gave me water, I want to let his praises swell. Jesus gave me water, Jesus gave me water, Jesus gave me water, and it was not where there was a woman from Samaria came to the well. And I'm reading a book about Sam now, and they talk about the highway QCs and course you know pop staples and the staple singers and a young aretha franklin who at 19 had to ask her father for permission to sing anything other than gospel yes yes absolutely i um gospel music was prevalent in 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 uh my family my mom sang gospel and she went we went to church uh like it or not we were in church every sunday morning and on Wednesdays, we went to choir practice and stuff like that. So, uh, but uh, yeah, Sam's story was similar. I mean, as a young kid, uh, he started early singing with, uh, well, he, he and Lou Rawls grew up together and they started singing in Chicago there uh, with a, a, a choir. And then of course, uh, I think around 18 or 19, uh, he was asked to join the Soul Stirrers. And uh, that's when I came, became aware of him. And uh, his voice was so unique. And the way he phrased and the way he ad-libbed and how he treated a melody. And it just blended so well with the rest of the soulsters. And uh, I had a chance um, at a young age to go and hear one of the soulsters concerts in a church uh, in Memphis uh, because they had uh, traveled to Memphis and got gotten stranded in Memphis. Well, not stranded, but the car had to have some uh, mechanical work on the car. So they were in Memphis for about a week. And uh, one of the things that uh, they did was uh, did that appearance at this church. And I went to hear them and uh, it was just uh, mind boggling for, for a seven or eight year old kid. Amazing story. And 
a lot of what he talks about in the book in that era when he was traveling with the Soul Stirrers was how difficult it was for black people on the road. They had this dual life of adoration on stage, playing in front of big houses, three, four, five thousand people. But then, you know, just an absolute kick in the teeth, you know, and everywhere else in terms of where they could stay, where they could eat. Do you remember all that? Absolutely. Yeah. When I started uh, touring, uh, it was early on. Uh, I started singing secular music. I got into it uh, after uh, you sent me. I formed a vocal group in high school and uh, called the Del Rios, and we were performing at a club uh, in Memphis called um, uh, the Flamingo Room, and we were working with the Phineas Newborn Orchestra, and he had just uh, kind of like a Count Basie band with a oh about fourteen uh, just extraordinary musicians. He had. Charles Lloyd in there for a while, Fathead Newman, Hank Crawford. As a matter of fact, Ray Charles found Hank Crawford in Phineas's band. And then with Phineas Newborn Jr. and Calvin and Wonder, all those guys, uh, you know, it was just uh, as 14 years old and working with that band, it was just a joy. So I started on the road during the summer traveling with them, and it was just it was a hard time on the road. I mean, once we got to where we were going, it was fine. We did our concerts, um, and uh, but if we we didn't have the usually in the in the places we were working, they only had one black motel, and probably it had maybe twenty units. So <laughs> if you didn't get there on time, uh, you know, or you didn't get there early. They didn't have a four or five units, and either we, if we could get lucky enough to get a room, we had to have triple or four in a room, and sometimes they were filled up. And uh, the people from the uh, concerts would let us stay with them. Otherwise, you had to get on the road and travel to the next job, the next city, and on the road was no different because you were harassed by the highway patrol and all of that, and sometimes had to uh, take the instruments out and sing and perform on the side of the highway. So it was just a trying time because this was like uh, the late 50s, early 60s, and the civil rights uh, movement was just beginning to happen. And so we caught a lot of flack uh, because of that. And, and you would be you know, just arbitrarily hassled by the police for doing nothing. Yes, they would, if you pass through one of the little towns or something, they would just tailgate you and they would be, maybe look like a foot and a half from the back of your bumper. And if you 
just swerved or did anything wrong, they'd pull you over, just looking for an excuse to pull you over. So, uh, um, but uh, we were able to, uh, after we started recording, uh, change a lot of attitudes about uh, the segregation issues and all of that. So that was a good thing that we right. were able to make a difference. But early on, it was really rough. And not only for us back in the late 50s and 60s, but the ones that uh, came before us, like Billy Holidays and the Count Basic bands, they went through the same thing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I guess as a country, you look to where we are now in the conversation on race in America. And it seems like in many ways we've come so far and yet we still have and so far, right. so far to go, right? Yes, you know, it, it's it's ironic. Uh, I was telling someone the other day, it's like right now living the 60s all over again. Mm. Uh, and it's it's amazing that here we are in 2020 and you still got the the bigotry and the racism and 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 people dying from uh, br pr uh, police brutality and all of that and uh, these things were happening back then and they're still happening today. Yeah. All the deaths and uh, the Medgarers and the Dr. Kings and all of those people giving their lives for the movement and all and we've still got the same problems. Yeah, no, it's, uh, listen, let, let's hope the pendulum of sanity in this country swings back and we can start really making changes because that's what we need. We, we have to, we have to realize that uh, we're all human, we're all on this planet together and uh, we've got enough uh, problems with the nat uh, natural disasters, the pandemics, the earthquakes, the fires, all of these things. So we need to learn to live together and survive this planet and yeah. treat Mother Earth a little bit better. Yeah, I think Mother Earth is giving us a little fire and brimstone just to try to get Absolutely. us back in check. Yeah, no, Absolutely. no question. So at a young age, William, 14, you start getting recognized. You start winning talent contests and things are starting to happen for you at a pretty young age. Yeah, I um, some friends of mine enter, entered me into uh, what you call the Mid-South Talent Contest, which was the states of Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee. And I won, and one of the uh, um, prizes was uh, to go to Chicago and play with the Red Saunders Band at the old club, Delisa. And the next one was to uh, get a recording contract with uh, Media Records and one of the Bahari brothers who had a little studio on uh, Thomas Street in Memphis. And uh, uh, I got the recording contract and went up to Chicago, got the recording contract, came back and I wrote a song. I was writing her at an early age, even about 10, I would put my stuff to music. Uh, I wrote a song called Alone on a Rainy Night with the, the vocal group that I had called the Del Rios.
And um, we used the Rufus Thomas's band, the Bearcats, to back us. And we went into uh, Media Records, recorded the song, and they released it as a 45 back in those days. And uh, it was uh, semi-successful with the college crowd in Arkansas and Tennessee, Mississippi. So as a vocal group, we got a lot of work with uh, us and the Phineas Newborn Band because of it uh, from the college circuit. Amazing. And you end up as the first male artist signed by Stax. Absolutely. When I signed with them, they were still satellite records. Right. And um, they had uh, Last Night by the Marquis, and then they had cut a song by Rufus, I mean, by Carla Thomas called Gee Whiz. And uh, they had put some background voices on Jim had. Uh, and um, the voices were, as we say in the, in the business, singing flat, off key. And they asked us uh, if we could do the background work because uh, uh, we were known uh, by uh, Chips Moman, who was with the company at that time. And he said, knew of us as from the Flamingo Room and working around Memphis at different locations. And uh, he brought us to Stax and we did the background work uh, again on uh, G Wiz for Carla Thomas. And uh, that was our first uh, introduction into Stax Records. And they wanted to uh, sign us up, which they did. And uh, we cut a couple of singles uh, with them as the Del Rios. So, William, not much is known about Jim and Estelle and the whole evolution of Satellite to Stacks. And, you know, it was a real family business. Can you talk about, about Jim and Estelle and, you know, and, and tell the story of how Stacks became Stacks? Yeah, uh, Jim and Estelle started in, in, uh, the uh, garage uh, with, a, with a little two-track machine. And then, of course, they had a little success. Uh, uh, and then they had Last Night, which was a, a big hit instrumentally in, within the Southeast. Uh, so they had enough money to buy this old theater building uh, in the heart of uh, the Black neighborhood uh, on Mclemore Street. Uh, in South Memphis. So they bought it and set up shop and to just earn enough money to pay the rent and everything. Estelle started a uh, record shop where the concession was. Uh, and she started a record shop and put some speakers on the outside. So all of us neighborhood kids would congregate in front of the theater building there and listen to the latest records and uh, Mrs. Axton would come outside and pick our brains and find out why we like this or did we like the beat, did we like the, the, the story that it told. And um, 
uh, when we started recording with them, um, they had a problem with the name Satellite. There was another label in California that had the same name and had, uh, had a patent on it. So they had to come up with a name. So they took Stewart, which is Jim Stewart, and Mrs. Axton, who was his sister who had married, and her last name was Axton. So they took the ST and AX and made Stax records. Right. Um, they had one record, because uh, they had uh, leased uh, G Wiz to Atlantic um, on Carla. And they had one record with Rufus and Carla, which was Cause I Love You. And then when they came to me and I did uh, the couple of singles for them with the, the Del Rios, most of the group of the Del Rios, except Lewis and I were young, and but most of them were of draft age. They had the draft back then. And so they were drafted in the military. So that left me and Lewis. So Chips asked me if I would do a single for Stax. And I had been on the road for all summer with the Stax, uh, with the Old Man Phoenix's orchestra. So when I came back, I ran into Chips. He said, do you want to record yet? So I had written a song called You Don't Miss Your Water. And uh, I didn't think anything would happen with it other than what had happened with the, uh, the, the media song, which was just basic three, three uh, state uh, gigging uh, rights. So I recorded uh, You Don't Miss Your Water, wrote a couple of other songs, Formula for Love and everything. And so I recorded four sides. And uh, of course, we recorded, uh, to make a long story short, we recorded uh, You Don't Miss Your Water the latter part of 1961, like I think in November or December. And they started playing it and then the Christmas music came in and the DJs got off it. So back in January, they started back to playing it. And uh, we started getting calls for at Stacks for me to come to different cities uh, to do concerts. And uh, the record just took off. It was one of the first major national hits that Stax had had at that time. In the Jim and Estelle were just elated, and so was I. I was just, it was amazing because I hadn't really planned on having a, a major career in music. But Jim and Estelle, to make a long story short, I know no, you please, no, no, no. They were like God sent to all of us neighborhood kids. 
because uh, the uh, segregation was still in place, but Jim and Estelle treated us as one of their own and they took us in, let us come in, learn our, hone our craft, learn how to constructively write good music and uh, learn about the recording process and just took us into under their wings. And uh, we were good for them because we were talented kids, but we didn't have an outlet. They gave us an outlet. And uh, then the uh, clerical department of Stacks and the business end of it was all mixed, black and white. And of course, the rhythm section that they were using with the MGs, Booker T and the MGs, which Steve Cropper and Doug Dunn. Uh, at first it was Al, uh, Al Jackson, Steve Cropper, Booker T and Louis Steinberg. And then uh, Louis Steinberg uh, went out on its own. And so then they uh, got Doug Dunn to do the bass work. So, but that rhythm section played behind probably I say 90% of all the music that came out in the early, the first five years of Stacks. Yeah. So William, I'd l I want to talk a little more about Booker T and the MGs with you because we had Steve Cropper on Great Minds. He was fantastic. And I'm an enormous fan of him and Duck Dunn and, and Booker T. I've seen them all. Talk about how great they were because very few people could really appreciate how important they were and all the talent, starting with you, that they played for. tell you those they were for a long time unsung because they were the best musicians possible for us trying to do original songs and original music they were so creative and most of us with the exception of uh, Stephen Duck which they came out of the same rock, same uh, rockabilly group uh, with last night um, most of uh, the other musicians, like Al Jackson, I knew him from way on. He, he was in his dad's band, and he played with Willie Mitchell for a while. So we were all grew up in Memphis. Booker T and his family and my family went to the same church. So I knew Booker. We went to the same high school, Booker T, Al Jackson, uh, David Porter, uh, there were a lot of us creative people in that neighborhood. Marbury's Reese uh, White from Earth, Wind, and Fire. He lived down maybe three doors from me. David lived on the next street over from me. Uh, and a lot of us knew each other. So uh, this was in, around uh, Stacks was maybe a six block area. And uh, so we were all from the neighborhood. So when we started creating we were from the same <laughs> background learning 
the same music uh, on WDIA. Rufus was a DJ there, and a lot of other DJs. Muhar Williams, he had a Teen Town group. That's how I met Carla and and David. We were all Isaac Hayes. We were in the Teen Town, so we were all from the same area, same background. And when we got hooked up with the MGs, it was just heaven sent because we all had the same background in music. And Booker and those guys were so talented. They played behind all of the acts, but they would really lock into and create a different sound for every act. And which just made them amazing that they did that. And during those days, we had what we call back-to-back sessions, day and night. And sometimes we would work almost 24 hours and just take a break in the studio, crawl into a corner and sleep, wake up and go back to recording. So it was just a, a, a wonderful time to be young and being creative and not realizing that we would have the longevity that we had, but we knew we were getting excited hearing our music on the radio and we were learning a craft. Amazing, amazing. So, so well, well remembered and well told. So at some point you end up going on the road and start going on tour and there were all these incredible lineups and package shows that used to go out and tour together. Oh, must, yeah. have, must, I, have been, must have been incredible, William. It was eye-opening <laughs> and incredible all at the same time. Uh, and we got to know a lot of the other acts that were recording, like the Motown acts. Uh, I worked with Gladys Knight and the Pips, Smokey Robinson. Uh, then I worked with in Chicago with Gene Chandler, Major Lands, Jerry Butler and the Impressions. So... We worked on a tour. They had a man named uh, Henry Wynn out of Atlanta who went on to become my manager. But he was a concert promoter, and he had the first black uh, league of concerts promoters throughout the country. Uh, and uh, he had one promoter in uh, Russo in Texas and he had a young man named Richard Bell in Indianapolis and then Teddy Powell up on the East Coast and somebody out in California. So he would book from those agencies, from Universal and IFA and all those agencies out of New York. He would book the Aretha's and the Sam Cooks and, the, and uh, all of these people at that time, Benny Kings as the headliners, Chuck Jackson. He would book us, put us on two buses, the band on one Greyhound bus, all of the acts on another Greyhound bus, and we would tour for sometimes from three to six months at a time, and we got to meet our fan base and create fan bases on the Henry Wynn tours, and it was just amazing because we uh, found out that a lot of the Motown acts they were born in the South and then migrated to uh, Detroit, like Aretha and all of the rest of them. Um, then uh, a lot of the Chicago acts 
were born in Mississippi and migrated from in Alabama, migrated uh, to Chicago. And when we got on the tours, it was just like old home week. And, uh, but we learned so much on how to perform before live audiences of 10 to 15,000 folk. And then we were spreading the, the Southern soul and the soul music around the US and then abroad. Great, and talk about your first time going to Europe. That must've been also just incredible. <laughs> oh, it was. I remember my first tour, the headliners were Chuck Jackson and uh, uh, The Impression, Curtis Mayfield, The Impressions. And uh, then um, I was on as an opening act because I only had one hit record, which was You Don't Miss Your Water. And then uh, there were a couple of places where they added uh, like Detroit and a couple of other places, they added little Stevie Wonder on uh, wow. because we were at, at the Coliseum and places like that. So they would put uh, dual headliners and stuff on. I worked with Jackie Wilson. I worked with uh, the Gene Channels, the Jerry Butler's and the Impressions. I worked with the Sh Shy Lights and the Temptations and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, all of those, Martin, Marvin Gaye. So we all, uh, at one time or another, wound up on the same tour. So it was just, uh, like I said, mind boggling and, and wonderful to be able to create new fans and we were competitive on stage but off stage we were just good friends like uh when stack started creating their own superstars after i went into the military of course otis came on board rufus had a monster hit with uh walking the dog and the dog and then they had carla then they had sam and dave so uh, when I came off out of the service, of course, we put our own headliners out there with me and Otis, and then some some of the dates we had Sam and Dave, Otis, and the Eddie Floyds, the staple singers. So, but we still at, at a lot of uh, cities like New York, Philadelphia, they would add some of the Motown acts into the mix. Uh, but uh, it was just wonderful that. Uh, we were traveling, building a, a, a fan base uh, because they did not have the internet. They had the internet, but it was not that popular right. back then. Right. So traveling about and doing concerts, you built up your fan base and you got to meet some of the other acts and stuff, the New Orleans acts. I worked a lot with the Ernie Cato's and the Lee Dorsey's and Robert Parker's and all those people out of New Orleans and just uh, Alan Toussaint and became lifelong friends. Oh, incredible stories. Yeah, I was very lucky to actually uh, work a number of time with the Neville brothers and became very friendly with Art Neville. Uh, oh yeah. And Cyril and, and all of them, but Charles who's gone now and yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So, and uh, uh, you know, uh, those guys, uh, the ones that are left, we are still very close. Uh, uh, we have just, just done a movie about Southern soul music uh, 
from the New Orleans called Take Me to the River. And we did one earlier about Memphis music with Take Me to the River, Memphis Soul. So, um, and we just had an old home week when we got together to do the movie and just uh, hook up again. Oh, that's great. Who, who else is in it with you? Uh, well, Snoop and I, Snoop Dogg. Uh, then from Memphis, we had just a ton of musicians. Uh, uh, we had, uh, let me think now, we had, of course, Bobby Bland, uh, a lot of the rappers, Frazier Boy and, and uh, Al Capone. And then we had uh, a lot of the other acts, older acts, uh, out of Memphis and we just mixed everybody together with the new acts, the old acts. We had uh, the Willie Mitchell's uh, trio there, all of the the brothers that played behind all of the Al Green records with Teeny Hodges and the Hodges guys and Rev and all those guys. We just mixed it all up. Then we had some of the Stax kids and brought them on the road so they could experience playing live before live audiences. And we just actually mixed genres of music together. And, and Snoop and I were a team together. And of course, uh, Bobby Bland and Yo Gotti. And just, we just mixed everybody up. Bo uh, uh, Bobby Rush, of course. Uh, uh, and... Uh, just so many acts that we wow. had on there. And Great. we traveled all over the U.S. back during uh, 2016 through 2000, uh, beginning of 2019. And is that out now or it's not out yet? Uh, yes, Take Me to the River is out. Uh, we had it on Netflix for a while, but uh, we're getting ready to re-release and re uh, package it with the New Orleans group, and that should be out in 2021. Great. And Great. Uh, hopefully with COVID, we're waiting to see what COVID is going to do, and that we'll put a tour out uh, that will have a blending of the first Take Me to the River musicians with the New Orleans Take Me to the River musician. And uh, of course, uh, Martin Shore, who's the producer and director of all that and Boo Mitchell and and North Mississippi All-Stars. So we mix it all up uh, and uh, just blend it all together and put it out there. And uh, the people just really, they were ecstatic over the concerts oh, and everything. Yeah, that, that is, a, oh, wow. So let's go back to something you said a minute ago, which I really love that you were all so competitive on stage, but off stage, everybody, you know, were really, you were really friends. You were all really close. Did you get to watch each other perform or were you two wrapped up in what you were doing to watch anybody else? Oh yeah, we, we stand backstage. And in, in some instances, you go in certain cities, uh, say when I was traveling with Otis, uh, he was hot. But then in, there were certain cities that I had been out there a little before he was. I was more, uh, I was hotter than he was in those cities. So we would exchange uh, headlining spots. In other words, 
uh, Otis would co-headline and go on just before me and he'd come off stage and wink and laugh and say, I got you. And then I'd come on behind him and I really had to step up my game because the audience was still yelling for Otis when he came on. <laughs> and the same thing with me, when some of these things where, where he was headlining, we'd come off stage and uh, I'd come off and wink, give him a wink and said, top that, you know, oh, and, and he'd go out and, 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 and most of the time he would. Um, <laughs> but off when we were not touring, Either he'd come to Atlanta, or I'd go to Macon, and we'd hang out and go to some of the places, the clubs and joints, and just hang out with the real people and set up the whole place with beers and everything, and just have a good time and 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 mingle with the people. So it, uh, uh, we're both country boys, so we will enjoy doing that. And and William Legend has it that you were supposed to be on the plane that fateful night with Otis Redding. Yes, I was in Memphis to do a session on me, and then Otis came in to do that song he had, and he had just uh, gotten out of the doctor's care because he had polyps on his uh, vocal cords. And um, so he was kind of a little bit antsy about how he was gonna sound. This was his first session after being able to sing and talk. And of course, um, removing those polyps and everything, he didn't know what his voice would sound like. But I was there uh, at the studio and we hung out uh, after sessions and stuff. And um, I had a concert in Chicago. <clears throat> he had one in uh, Wisconsin. And uh, so he said, uh, he had met the barcade at my club. I had a club at one time when I first got out of the military. I started a club called the Tiki Club and the barcades were my little um, uh, house band on the weekends. I had to get permission. They were only like 14, 15 years old and I had to get permission from their parents for them to sing in the club as my house band on, on Friday and Saturdays. And a couple of times I took them on the road on Friday and Saturday and they worked behind me in Tennessee and, and Mississippi and different places where it was, uh, we could go and come back for them to be in school on, on, on Monday morning. <laughs> and Otis came in to do a concert at the Coliseum once and all of the acts and stuff that came in to Memphis to do concerts would hang out at the Tiki Club. And Otis came in and heard this little band the barcades and he uh, they just blew his mind so um uh in the interim of that he started taking them on the road with him on some dates and stuff and so he asked me if he wanted me if i wanted him to drop me off in uh chicago uh at the tivoli uh which is a theater there and as luck would have it I was going to go with him that weekend. I could leave that Friday, but my date, uh, the dates were starting Saturday and uh, Sunday at the Tivoli Theater. That a snowstorm came up and it was such a bad storm, uh, they canceled my date. And so I didn't go with him on the plane ride because I was going to go 
on his Friday night date that he was going to do and then travel with him and let him drop me off on Saturday in Chicago and continue on up to Wisconsin. So I didn't do it. So that Sunday, I got a call from a DJ friend of ours in uh, Wisconsin, and he was kind of a kid or DJ. And he called me that Sunday afternoon and asked me if I had heard about Otis. And uh, I told him, no, I thought he was going to tell me he had a great concert or something like that. And he told me that Otis's plane had just crashed. And I thought he was kidding. And I had told him that, please, don't don't kid like that and, and everything. And uh, he said, no, I'm in, this, in the uh, radio station. It had not come out. It was on a ticker tape or something that it was coming through on the, the tape in the radio station. And I was watching TV, but nothing had come up on TV that Sunday afternoon. So uh, I was looking at TV and I found out when they started running it across the screen on the TV screen. Such a, and then very quickly, I guess as the story goes, Cropper went into back into the studio to finish Stock in the Bay and get it out. Uh, yeah, I, um, I was just, uh, I, I knew Otis was a good swimmer. And when they said it crashed in the lake, um, I'm saying, well, he's a good swimmer. He'll, he'll survive this. Right. And I didn't realize that the lake was frozen over. That's why they had the circle that lake because they ran into another one of those snowstorms and they, couldn't land, they had to circle around uh, and, and before they could try and land. And uh, of course, uh, uh, I don't know if the plane ran out of fuel, I, I doubt it, but something happened or it froze up or something, the propellers and they crashed in the lake. And of course, the only survivor from that was Ben Cauley, which uh, was a little trumpet player from the bar case. And he woke up and had told me later that for some reason, when he woke up, the plane was in a tailspin, and he, for some reason, unbuckled his seatbelt because he was asleep. And um, when the tr uh, plane hit the frozen lake, it uh, cracked in half, and he was thrown out into the water. But uh, that's how he actually survived himself. But uh, of course, um, Otis was up front in the in, in the co-pilot's chair with the pilot, and uh, uh, his head hit the uh, front of the uh, instruments, and uh, they would carry it mm. underwater. Mm. And William, so many of your closest friends, musicians, so many of them left us so young. You know, Jackie Wilson left us young. Sam Cooke left us young. We were just talking about Otis. That must have been very difficult for you as someone who, you know, you were all sort of in it together at the same time. Yeah, and we were together uh, that whole uh, week just about, you know, and, and it was just shocking a day later, a couple of days from Friday through Sunday, he's gone. I walked around, uh, I don't know how long, just in a daze. I um, 
remember after I saw it on the uh, uh, teletype across, going across the screen on the TV, I was just in shock because I drove around and I don't know where I drove to. I drove around Memphis. Actually, it was about uh, maybe 5.30 or 6 o'clock when they started showing it on the back of the, uh, on the bottom of the screen. I got up, got in my car, and I started driving. I don't remember where I drove to this day. I know it was around Memphis and just driving uh, abstractly. And I wound up, and it was dark in the front of Stax Records. And I don't remember except when I, the doors, I remember the doors being open and it was chilly, cold. And um, everybody uh, that was in there, there were only a few people in there and some of the clerical uh, workers had come over and everybody was of course hysterical and everything. And I got out, I stopped the car and realized I was in front of stacks. That was my first inkling of where I had been or, or what I had done for a couple of hours. And um, I walked in and I don't know who it was that came up. I think it was Deanie Parker or somebody that was over there manning the phones and because the phones were ringing off the hook. And she had told me that uh, uh, they had not found Otis yet. And I've, I'm still uh, hoping beyond hope. And I got on one of the other phones and called OC White, which was the DJ that uh, had called me from Milwaukee. And I asked him if he had heard anything. And uh, <clears throat> they had picked up some of the barricades found them because as I understand it, it was also very snowy and foggy at the same time there after the crash. And uh, it took them a while to locate some of the bodies and everything of the barricades. And uh, they did find Ben because they were calling for people and he was able to call out. Uh, and uh, they found him and got him medical to, to the hospital, and, but they hadn't found Otis that yet. So uh, uh, it was just uh, chaotic at Stacks to say the least. Uh, and it, I was still in shock and I was in shock for a couple of days after that until I just really, they found the body and it just it set in that uh, he had passed. Well, listen, all these years later, you know, I can hear it in your voice, you know, how meaningful that was and still is to you. Oh, yeah. We, we were good friends. I mean, we traveled together on the tours. We traveled together for about a year, a little over a year, as a two-man tourist thing with the band. And um, we traveled in the same car and and all that. And so there's so many memories and stuff of us just... Uh, Going back, I remember one memory was running out of gas. The driver, Otis and I were in the backseat and we had done a show in D.C. and he ran out of gas and Otis had told him to, uh, uh, the driver was Speedo and said, 
make sure you gas up while we're doing the concert because we had to drive all the way to the the other airport, uh, which was about uh, 30 or 40 miles away to get on a plane to go to another city. <laughs> and uh, we ran out of gas uh, right at seeing sight of the airport. And he and I had to get out and <laughs> jump the fence and travel across the runway and try to catch that flight. We were able to barely catch it. Oh, but uh, it was just uh, oblivious of all the planes landing and stuff that night. At night, and we ran out of gas, and we had to run across that, uh, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> crazy airport. stuff. I mean, just crazy stuff that you think about. Uh, a lot of stuff on the road and things that we went through. But um, we were uh, uh, good friends. I mean, uh, uh, and he did die too young there's a such thing as 27 that number 27 yeah. years old that and it's amazing that so many people died at that that young age um, but uh, uh, it was uh, just etched in my mind about uh, how he died and I was supposed to have gone as far as Chicago and you always think well if he had stopped to uh, land in Chicago, maybe he would have missed the storm or wouldn't have had to take off or wouldn't have been able to take off in Chicago if I had gone to Chicago. But uh, you just never know about that. Yeah, amazing. And you were on the road, you know, you said just for a year, the two of you is an alternating headline act and you got to watch him. You got to stand, as you said, backstage for people like Jackie Wilson. When you look back at that time when you were on the road so much and everybody was at sort of the height of their powers, you must have seen some incredible performances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've seen people faint and and women throw undergarments and stuff on stage and and people jumping on stage to dance, not meaning to injure you or anything, but you know, you can get hurt when those fans overzealous get on stage and stuff so a lot of stuff that when you think back on it and then our good times friends that we both met on the road musicians plus other acts that were on shows with us and um, and it was just uh, great memories and good times and uh, uh, you know those things that that, that you, you uh, carry on in your mind so uh, uh, it was just wonderful to do that. And, uh, of course, everybody was releasing um, We Love You, Otis, We'll Miss You, Otis songs and all of that. And I wanted, I was feeling, my heart was so heavy, I wanted to feel something, write something to give to Zell, the, Zelmer, uh, his wife, and I knew the kids and all of that to leave. Uh, about his life story. So Booker and I got together and we wrote uh, Tribute to a King. And I, I, I wanted to just uh, give it to his wife and just so that they could have it. So we did what we called back then an acetate of it as we, once we got it finished, Booker and I, and sent it to his wife. And um, she called... Uh, 
Jim Stewart and they wanted to release it. And I didn't want people to think that I was trying to capitalize on my good friend's death. And I fought against it, fought against it. And they prevailed and kept everybody at stacks. Man, we should release it. And I caved in and said, okay, what we'll do, we'll put it as the B side <laughs> on this 45 and release it. And um, of course they put it as the B side, but when it came out, nobody played the A side of the 45. All the jocks went on tribute to a king uh, because it was uh, actually about the life story of, uh, in three verses or less in the chorus uh, of Otis's life. And uh, they all played it. And uh, uh, to my chagrin, I guess it became a major hit record. Uh, and I was always hesitant about singing it, but I would go off stage and all of the promoters and the fans were beating on the stomping on the floors and stuff, wanting to uh, hear the tribute to a king. So I always had to sing it. Uh, and it was usually the last song at the end of my set because if they didn't ask for it, I didn't sing it because I didn't want anybody to think that I was crying, trying to uh, capitalize on the uh, death. Well, and that's, and not only are you, uh, you know, one of the greatest singers America's ever produced, but you're also a brilliant songwriter and that your songs all these years later, William, are still fresh and new. Well, thank you. It's, it's you know, I, I feel very fortunate uh, that I write about life. Sometimes it's personal experiences. Sometimes it's uh, observation. I'm a people watcher. I, I have been since I was in church, actually. Uh, I, I, and when I started working in nightclubs, I had a thing of sitting way in the back at the last table just before you go backstage to the dressing room. And I would watch people and reactions of people, how they came in uh, when the doors first opened at eight or nine o'clock at night in the club. And then after 1130 or 12 o'clock when they've had three or four drinks, how they changed their personalities changed. I was always a people watcher. And um, so I, I, I write a lot from observation and then sometimes just a hypothetical situation I'll write about. Uh, but I always try to write with truth and honesty. And if, I, if it's hypothetical, I, I, I write about how I think that I would react in that situation and uh, write truthfully. I try to write in a sense that uh, when you hear a lyric, it's uh, self-explanatory. The listener would not have to wait, uh, try to find out, I wonder what he meant by that phrase or something. So I think a lot of, and to see a lot of acts that cover my stuff, and I've been covered uh, in every genre from uh, soul to blues to rock to, country to pop uh, and even jazz so uh, it's it's uh, rewarding to me as a songwriter and creator that so many people the fans and another musician will uh, relate to something that I created 
fantastic. And I love how you stayed active and you're still playing live. I saw you here in New York, you know, back before the virus shut us all down. But I saw that you got to play a great gig a couple of years ago at Royal Albert Hall with Jules Holland. That must have been yeah. a great experience. It was. It was. And uh, I, I love doing stuff like that. And uh, I love working. I'm, like I said, coming out of church and clubs. Uh, the one thing about being super successful, you start playing larger venues. And you can make contact with maybe the first three or four rows, but that's about it. Even though they're out there, you don't really see them or you don't. But working smaller venues and stuff, um, you really become uh, close to your fan base and you can uh, uh, take breaks and intervals in, in, in your songs and explain the process of a, a song or a lyric and and just really give the people just a little bit more than what uh, they would get at just a huge uh, mega concert. So I, I like working small venues and at least from 1,500,000 seaters, they're all good. But uh, when you get to the 10,000, 15, 20,000 folk, it becomes not impersonal, but you only can see the reaction or feel the reaction. You hear the cheers and you hear that. And sometimes you, after the, the ending of a concert, they stand up and give you a standing ovation, which is always great because that way that's a, an attestment of, okay, somebody way up in the nosebleed bleed section, they really got it, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I love, uh, that's one of the things I dislike about this COVID situation. You cannot get out there and I'm a people person. I like meeting my fans and signing autographs and meeting them up in the lobbies and everything and signing their memorabilia and stuff. And you get to really know people one-on-one -on -one yeah. because behind the scenes, we're all just normal people. We've got a stage persona and, and we're superstars to the fans, but we're still uh, behind the scenes. I am. I know uh, you uh, get back to the hotel, you get back home and you still have to take the garbage out or you still have to. Yeah, you so sure you're just do. a normal person. Yeah. You sure do. So just to start to wrap things up, I know a few years ago you sort of revived the Stax label. Yeah, that that was great that I, I was able to do that because they were looking for something, a project to put them back into the Stax mainstream as opposed to just releasing old Stax products. And we were fortunate that I got to work with uh, John Leventhal, who is just the consummate musician. I, and we became great friends. Uh, he was a fan of mine, I, I found out, he said, and a fan of Stax. And when we met the first time, he came to Atlanta and met at my studio. And we just picked each other's brain and uh, we didn't actually try to write a song. We just talked. 
for about two hours. And then he had to go back to New York. So I told him I'd come to New York and we would sit down and talk some more. So I stayed up there a week for about two days. We talked some more and just, uh, we wanted to do the project. We found that out. And, but we wanted to, uh, how can I say, uh, not reinvent the wheel of the old stack sound, but still retain some of the essence of it. And he was aware of all of the horn arrangements and how they uh, 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 voiced the horns. And, and we wanted good lyrical content, good melodic structure. And uh, we had the luxury of either working in my studio or working in his studio, and we were not necessarily on the clock. So we took about a year after we I made the transition. I took a hiatus from Wilby Records, which is my label, and signed with the new stacks, with Concord, the new stacks. And uh, they had some great young people there that had done their homework, and they knew of my work and stuff from the old stacks days. And um, they really just gave me a budget and gave me carte blanche and said, okay. So we had to write the song. So uh, <clears throat> John and I took our time just to write. We'd write a song and demo it in his studio when I worked in New York. And sometimes I'd go back to the hotel, rework the lyrics, tighten it up, go back the next morning and listen to it and get on the mic and said, okay, John, I want to do it again. And so we would do it, <laughs> uh, the write two or three different versions of this same idea for a song. And um, we just tailor made a new version of Stax. And nowadays it's world music. And we know this by the time it hit the internet or or across the waters in Europe and, and, and the Orient and places. Uh, and since we do have a tremendous fan base in those regions, we wanted to make uh, the stories to where it's uh, uh, palatable for whatever generation, whatever nationality, right. whatever country you're from. and. Uh, and we took our time to do that. And it took us about a year to get the completed thing. But we took them the first song. Mark Cohen called in one day, and he was a good friend of John's and another fan of mine. I was a fan of Mark's uh, from walking in Memphis and and his writing ability. Right. He said, I, I've got this idea that you guys, you since you're writing, I'm going to throw an idea at you. And I only have two lines and a title. <laughs> and he gave us this idea of the three of me. And it intrigued me. And uh, I saw the two lines that he had. And so I went back to the hotel that night and John said, well, I will try to come up with some melodic thing that would fit this idea. I went back to the hotel and I didn't sleep much that night because that idea was, and I had a little small digital four track tape recorder and I put down 
four different concepts of this song. Came in and I uh, put down one concept and I listened to what John had created. And uh, that concept was, to me was a little bit harsh for that because it was more R&B-ish. And so I had a different concept. And so uh, John said, well, you might as well get on the mic and let's put it down and cut it. And I did it, I think we did it twice. We did it the first time and John was just elated over. He had put just uh, some guitar work down and hadn't put in the rhythmic parts on. <laughs> and um, I did it from the guitar work. And he was just jumping up and down over it. And I was just, I'm always that way. I'm saying, well, let me just try it one more time. And uh, when I did it the first time, it was loose and, you know, and I just uh, just uh, dwelled into it, didn't think about it, just performed it. And uh, the next time I was thinking too much and I could feel it. And so we accepted the first take on the three of me. We finished it up. And so we said, let's see if we're in the right ballpark. So we sent it to uh, Concord Stacks and they called back and said, this is exactly what we want. So we knew we were in the right ballpark. So we finished it up and finished up the album, took it to them. They released it. And it, number one, it became NPR's uh, That Three of Me song of the, the, the uh, month or the week or something, and uh, which was uh, exciting because we were creating new territory with uh, the Americana thing. And of course, to make a long story short, we won a Grammy, which kicked Stacks back into high gear, kicked my career back off big time. And John and I were just tickled to death about it. We went on the road, did about a two week tour uh, with his band. And um, we won a Grammy for it and uh we were just elated about that that's it what a what a great great story and what is the current state of stacks the 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 current sta the current state is stacks the current state yeah what is the current still state releasing, um it's 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 a viable label to be reckoned with um they are still releasing a lot of uh, old product Right. Uh, this year, oddly enough, was supposed to be a breakout year for us until COVID struck. Uh, it was an anniversary for the resurrection of Stacks. It was an anniversary of uh, uh, acquiring the the label uh, from. Concord acquiring a link. So a lot of anniversary stuff and we were gearing up to do a lot of promotional stuff. Uh, now it's on hold basically because of uh, the situation of the pandemic situation. But I'm hoping and praying that uh, by 
2021, um, at least by the middle of 2021, that we can uh, follow through with uh, the celebration because we were really excited. Everybody was excited and geared up for it. Uh, I am uh, still friends with a lot of the Stax people and they're very close to me. Um, my contractual obligations with them has expired, but we still do a lot of stuff for Stacks because we're still like a family unit. So hopefully we'll be able to give back up in 2021 and follow through on the celebrations and you'll hear a lot of different product. And I do know that they are acquiring a lot of brand new acts, uh, younger acts within that same mode like Southern Avenue and people like that that are in that same mode of uh, the earlier stacks years. So, and they're coming to us with a different uh, outlook on creativity and all of that. So it's exciting really to me being one of the, uh, the, <laughs> the grandfathers of stacks. <laughs> uh, it's exciting to me to be working with the kids and everything. And we're still doing that. And the kids are going on to become writers and producers and uh, different, uh, one of the young ladies, uh, Effie McKinney uh, was on the Take Me to the River tour with me, me and uh, the guys. Um, she has gone on to sign a great record deal with Motown and she's in the process of creating some new product just a wonderful, wonderful singer and musicians and stuff coming out of Memphis. So we, we're elated over that. Well, it is quite a legacy that you have built and that you're still out there, you know, making things happen. I mean, it's just so inspiring. Well, you know, we, we've got a fan base that uh, we can be proud of. Uh, and that's from Europe to the Orient to the uh, West Indies and Stax is like a magic name to these fans. We didn't realize how big we were <laughs> until we started touring abroad and, and realizing that we were like abroad, we were like the Beatles when they came here. So um, I, I have worked uh, Royal Albert Hall, uh, O2 Center, all of the huge uh, venues throughout uh, England, Germany, London, and different places. And we fill up these venues as uh, soul singers. So it's just amazing that that fan base uh, is still with us after 60 years. It sure and uh, they still at concerts sing along to the songs. You can see them that first four rows or something in concerts, uh, singing along and it's all generations. It's the multi-generational. Uh, you've got the, the grandparents, you've got the parents, and then you've got the kids. And sometimes backstage, they'll come backstage and, and they'll say, Mr. Bell, we've been listening to you and watching you our whole lives. And I'll ask, how old are you? Well, I'm 24 years old. Yes, you have. You know, so right. uh, and that's a kid that, but they, their parents 
uh, instill the stack sound into them, and then the grandparents instilled it into the parents. And and that's again, I think we had so many creative people that were great people, including the Sam and Dave, the Otis's, the Isaacs and Davids and the Collars and the Rufuses and all of those people, staple staple singers, and the songs and the the records. Uh, that's a testament of the good uh, productive work that we were doing in those days because it has withstood the test of time and that's it's still amazing to me to this day it, it sure all has and so have you william you have withstood the test of time and then some thank you well thanks so much for doing this i hope you enjoyed that i have enjoyed it uh, tremendously and uh whenever this uh, COVID thing is open. Hopefully, <laughs> we'll be back into New York because that's I have some great fans in New York, and we've played most of the. Uh, uh, I've only played two venues in New York that I ha I haven't played. The only two, and that's uh, Radio City <laughs> Music Hall, and uh, of course uh, uh, Carnegie Hall. So right, right. Those two, I'm looking forward to being able. That's to a good. Those are those are good goals. <laughs> we went. We went a couple of years ago. My son and I went. There was a great the night that they used to do. Usually they do it Macon, I think, um, honoring for the Otis Redding Foundation. Zelma was there, and the, and the boys were there, and they did yeah. it at the Apollo a couple of years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, I was on tour somewhere and couldn't get out to do it, but I do remember that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they got the Dap Kings with the band, house band, and yeah. uh, and uh, Cropper came, Booker came, both the boys. Der was it Derek and yeah. mm -hmm. Otis Junior? And Otis Junior. Yeah, yeah. Bo mm -hmm. both were in the show, and yeah, um, Carla, and his daughter. Yeah. yeah, they're carrying on the legacy. Uh, of Otis down there and they're doing a good job of it. Yeah. Great, wonderful. All right, well you stay healthy and we'll stay in touch. We'll see each other soon. All right, William. Stay well. All right. <laughs>